Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. This is going to be Bee Buzz Episode 9. We're going back to back to back here today. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I do appreciate you. Feel free to drop me an email, jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com, or for the security-minded folks, more on the bees at protonmail.com. Okay, when we last left off with our hero, we were talking about, let's see, switching the deeps in, uh, in, in times where we would or may not or seeing what makes sense, and we discussed a few options with that. So if you didn't miss it and this is your first episode jumping in, you can go back to Episode 8, and that'll be towards the end of that B-Buzz. Okay, so B-Buzz Episode 9, and we are picking up with talking about... Um, so there is a... a I was going to actually make an episode on this, but I think we're just going to talk about it briefly. I have a note here about, you know, like offering nukes or splits, you know, to people on Facebook or Craigslist or something like that. There have been a lot of people who have said, you know, I've I've got my one colony and I, I really like my one colony. You know, I'm I'm pretty happy with that. I I don't wanna split them. I don't wanna have two or four or twenty. I just want the one. And and I get it, I completely understand. I've got a good friend of mine out in Nebraska who um same thing, right? He just wanted one, it swarmed and he caught a swarm and he had two and he's like, That's it, no more than two, you know, and and that's a question a lot of people ask, like, how do I keep my apiary small? So that kind of leads you into a few different options. One of them, I would say, is, you know, if you're in a bee club, that's a great opportunity, right? You can tell somebody, hey, listen, if you bring me, you know, get a nuke box, bring me four frames or five frames, whatever you have. If you bring me five frames this spring, I'll give you a nuke. Or maybe, hey, since you're in the B club, I'll give you one for 50 bucks. Just give me give me five frames. Whatever deal you want to work out with them, that's a great way for you to reduce that tendency and that inherent desire to, to swarm in the spring by getting rid of some of that excess population. Uh, and like I said, you can do it for free, low cost, whatever you want to do. There's always people who are looking to get into beekeeping. So another thing you could do, like maybe you don't want to have a lot of them at your house, or like a lot of people have told me by email, they say, hey, you know, I, I'm not allowed to have more than one, two, five, whatever colonies it is on their property per local ordinances or, you know, other regulations that kind of um, you know, dictate the, the limitations of what they can and can't have. That might be an opportunity where you could say to a friend like, hey, I'm not interested in buying more hardware to take care of more colonies, but if you would like to you know, buy the hardware and have a hive in your yard, I'll give you some freebies to get you started. So you could go over there with the split in the spring. They have all the hardware. You install it. And then you can kind of help almost mentor them a little bit and just show them what they need to do 
you know, to take care of their bees. So they're going to pay for it. They'll pay for the hardware. You're just giving them some bees. It's a win-win. You know, a lot of people, I mean, the, the reality of it is, you know, one person having a colony in their backyard is not going to save the world, right? And a lot of people think, yeah, but if we just have everybody with one colony in their backyard, it's going to save the world. No, it's probably not. And the reason why it's not is probably because those people aren't treating for varroa. They're not treating for other things. There's a lot of disease, illness, and things that can get spread from one colony to another just by the drift that happens between colonies here and there. And more people not taking care of bees probably creates more problems. But getting people in, in you know interested and wanting to be involved, and if nothing else, I still say this like over and over, I love just sitting down with a cup of coffee and sitting down there watching the bees coming in and out and seeing the pollen sacks loaded up in the spring. Like I still love that. I just like it was my first year. I can still go out and sit down and I just get geeked out about it. It's um it's a super cool thing. You know, that might be one thing, like I said, Facebook, Craigslist, what other kind of marketplace that you want to use. That might be one option for you to keep your apiary small while still allowing you to enjoy your one or two colonies. So the next question I have is, why do we elevate the hives in the back? And that is because um, most honey that is produced by bees, um, you can get different types of honey. Um, I usually try to go with the 7-degree honey, but you can do either a 7, a 15, or a 20-degree honey. And this is just based on the angle of the... No, I'm kidding. There's no angles to it. Um, it has nothing to do with honey production. I'm completely joking. Um, the reason that you elevate the back of the hive is because there are things, of course, that can happen inside the colony that might you know, fall down. So as an example, if you had the colony was flat and the rain came in from a storm and just pushed a bunch of water up into the colony... If it's tilted, the, the, the water can kind of run back down. Or maybe if you had a feeder or something inside that leaked for whatever reason, it could leak, hit the bottom board, and then roll by. Or if you have condensation in the wintertime, right, the condensation will form on the very top. Whatever the, the most inner piece of the top is, the condensation will kind of sit there in the middle and drip down. But if you have it tilted forward the condensation will tend to run down towards the front of that, hits the front side of that hive body, and then runs down. And it kind of can help reduce a little bit of that moisture dripping back down on the bees. So that's kind of why you do that. So I have a note here about why you should be cautious of shared or free gear. So when I say gear, I think in this, in this note that I made, I'm really kind of gearing that towards frames, hive bodies, things like that. I would say probably 75, 80% of the time, if somebody were to say, hey, I've got some free bee stuff if you want it, then it's probably going to be okay. It's probably not going to be an issue. But there is a possibility that there could be some type of a microorganism, something that you can't see that is inside those frames, particularly if you have like a wax foundation, if it's drawn comb inside the frames. There are some things in particular diseases that can be within that comb that could not only affect or infect your healthy colony, but it could be something that could spread throughout your entire apiary. If you ended up with a frame that was previously infected with foul brood, I mean, the, the solution for dealing with foul brood is to burn it, like literally fire, put it into a pile and burn it. And, you know, that free stuff, it's great that it's free, but if it ends up destroying everything that you have in your apiary, 
then that's obviously not worth it. So that's where you want to be cautious there on the, the hive components side of things. I mean, outside of that, you know, any kind of disease related things, it's really more just a matter of make, making sure they've been maintained properly. So if it's free, maybe it's been sitting out in someone's backyard for a while and it needs to be maybe sanded and painted or something like that. Just a regular maintenance kind of issue, but it really comes down to protecting the colonies from disease. Now, if you're talking about like physical protective kind of gear, the only thing I would say with that one is making sure that you thoroughly check it for holes. Like if they said, oh yeah, I used to be a beekeeper, but I haven't done it in 10 years and I found my old bee suit in the attic or whatever. Great. But you really want to make sure that you check it out and, and be sure that there are not any moth holes in it or, you know, that something hasn't gotten into it and damaged it in some way, or maybe it, it's old and kind of rotted material where it starts falling apart. You don't want to figure out that, uh, that a moth ate a hole in it, you know, while you're doing an inspection, stuff like just common sense kind of things. All right. So now we're going to go into the big controversial one here. I've had a lot of people asking about this, and uh, I'm, I'm going to share my potentially unpopular opinion. So do I need a candy board in the hive over the winter? So a candy board can kind of be defined in different ways, but essentially you end up with a, a board or a small housing, or it's like a you know few inches high area of where you can put some type of candy. Some people will sprinkle in, you know, like a five-pound bag of, of raw cane sugar, some people will use fondant. Some people will use uh, not pollen patties, but like just, just things that are of a consistency. It's a little bit thicker than, like I said, fondant would be a good example, but something that is sugary that can supplemental feed the bees over the winter. So the one example being like cane sugar, like the granulated sugar. I, I did some research on this a long time ago, and the research I had basically indicated that the bees can't consume chunks of sugar they can't go up and bite into the sugar like a person can or like any other kind of animal might be able to do they actually have to get saliva and kind of and kind of you know spit the saliva onto the sugar to get it to start to break down a little bit and then they can kind of drink back a little bit of the sugariness that is in the granulated sugar so they the article that i read a while it's been a long time but it basically indicated at some point that it's roughly about half, you know, they get about half of the benefit as they would if it were actually in a syrup of some sort that they could consume. I guess you can make the case that it's better than nothing, but I've never used granulated sugar in any of my colonies, so I can't speak to that. I'll tell you about the two things that I've done to help provide supplemental feed. I think it was my first, first and second year, I think it was, I used a big, huge like glob of fondant because it was recommended on, on some beekeeping website. Oh, put some fondant in there. That'll be great. The first uh, one colony died and it looked like they hadn't even touched the fondant. The other colony lived and it looked like they had eaten a little bit of it, but not very much at all. So that didn't seem to do a whole lot. I had some pollen patties that were just, they were, I think they were the wrong time. They, they were the more carby focused versus the protein carb kind of balance. And they ate a little bit of them, but a lot of them were like frozen and dried out. Like they had kind of just, they were just crusty, dry, and maybe 30% of it was eaten. And then I compared that to all of my colonies that I put nothing in. I just let them live off of 
what they've stored. And I see absolutely no benefit, no value whatsoever to putting granulated sugar inside the colony. So I'm going to stand behind that. I'm going to say that's my official position that you don't need to put anything in there other than supplemental feed them some sugar syrup in the fall so that they have enough to, you know, enough stored reserves to make it through the winter. Uh, again, I, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I'll continue over the years as my apiary gets larger. I'll be able to have more space to experiment with new things. But I have not put anything. And again, I do have a couple of the pollen carb mix, or not the pollen carb, the protein carb mix, about a 50-50 mix of pollen patties that I will occasionally, if I happen to have one, I will throw one on either first thing, the first time I open the colony in the spring, or maybe the last time I close it in the, in the winter but I don't feel like it's something that's necessary. It's just I have them on stock from when I bought a whole bunch of them a long time ago, and I'm just trying to get rid of them. So I'm going to stand by my position on that one. I don't think you need them. Um, maybe if some reputable entity produces a report that shows that it's the most amazing thing in the world and increases survival by 4 million percent, then, then I'll sign up. Okay, how long does it take bees to settle down after an inspection? That would be 27 minutes and 18 seconds. Uh, I can't really give you a good number. I think that it really depends on the size of the colony, how disruptive your activities were within the colony, how often you inspect in general, I think, that, and then time of year. I think particularly in the spring, the bees are very forgiving. You know, they just, they seem to be doing their thing. They're focused on gathering as much pollen nectar as they can pollen and nectar as they can and they don't really they you know as long as you're not destroying things like there's times i've found in the spring where they're expanding so quickly that they'll just draw the comb from the bottom frames right up to the next you know as they go up so i open up i move the you know one of the high bodies around and i rip open a bunch of cells and i got this you know, larva and honey that's all over the place and I've made a mess. So I would really, it kind of comes down to, again, how much destruction did you cause by, by opening the colony? So they don't like it when you mess up with, you know, you mess with their brood and you mess with their, their food stores and stuff. They're going to get a little torqued. If it's a really big colony, the more bees that are angry, the longer that tends to stick around. I would say in general, you know, give it about an hour you know, uh, there are some smaller colonies that are, you know, used to things and the temperament, the overall temperament genetically of that hive is better. And you might go in and within 20 or 30 minutes, it's back to normal. There are some that can be really irritable and maybe even at this time of year, even more irritable. And they may take an hour and a half or two to settle down. So just give them a, give them a couple of hours, give them their space. And, but, but also stay in a routine, right? Try to get in there, you know, at least once every two weeks at this time of year, you're tapering, right? You're not in there as much as you used to be, but maybe in the spring and the early summer, you're in there at least every 10 to 14 days. They kind of get used to you being there as long as you're not tearing things up too much. And as long as their genetics are, are decent, you know, they shouldn't get too, uh, too crazy angry with you. Hey everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable in order to help keep the lights on. We do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there and I appreciate you. We will be right back. Thank you. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. All right, welcome back here. So the next question is, I have a deep, some mediums, uh, I'm treating for varroa in the fall. Can I harvest the honey that is left over from whatever was gathered in the fall? Can I harvest that in the spring? So there's a couple things I'll say about this one. The first thing about it is any time that honey or whether it's sugar syrup, whatever it might be, anything that is gathered, well, you shouldn't be eating honey made from sugar syrup, but whatever is gathered at a time when you have mite strips inside the colony, you should not consume that. You should not be using, let's say, for example, you have two deeps, queen excluder, and a medium. In, in my configurations in the past, that first medium would still be for the bees. I would not take that. The next medium on top of that would be my, my honey for me. But if that first medium had any honey stored in it at a time when they were treating for varroa, all of the frames in that medium would not be used. I would not use those for my honey or to sell to someone else if there was ever a treatment that was used when that hive body and those frames were on the colony. So the answer to the question is no. If you treat for Varroa and those frames and those inside those hive bodies are on there to overwinter, you're not going to be eating any of that honey in the spring. Number two, in the spring... There are a lot of things going on, and let's just say as an example, they have five frames of honey that's still available in their reserves. It's not uncommon that you get a couple of weeks where over the course of maybe two or three weeks, you have some really, really nice days in there. That's a time when the bees are like, oh, hold on. There's a little bit of a, there's some, you know, pollen outside. The weather's getting warmer, and they will immediately start ramping up. They'll take the remaining food that's stored, the remaining pollen that they've packed away, they will start rearing new brood. They'll, the queen's going to start laying eggs. They're going to start going all in on ramping up for the spring. And then all of a sudden it gets super cold again for like three weeks. And the bees are kind of in that oh crap mode because they've used a whole bunch of resources to feed, you know, the, the, uh, the spring 
ramp up workers and they're in a bit of a bind. They're stuck inside again for a couple of weeks while they're waiting for the weather to improve. And it's not uncommon at all in the spring, you know, like April showers bring May flowers kind of thing, right? You get a lot of rain, they're inside, they can't go anywhere. So if you start taking that honey from them, you absolutely run the risk of taking something away that could make the difference between life and death. I have lost bees in March, not not so much April, but I've lost bees in January, February, and March before. I would say for me, 90% of my colonies that die don't die in October, November, December. It's usually like a few in January, mostly February, and some of them in March. So you don't want to mess with that. Leave that for them. Worst case scenario, it ends up giving them a big boost to kind of start the spring. You know, like that's, that's not a bad thing. Leave it for them. Let them have it. If they need it to get through a period of time where there's, uh, where there's some cooler weather, some rainy weather, whatever it might be, it's better left for them. You know, you can always look back later and say, oh, wow, wasn't it great that they had extra honey versus having to look back and say, dang, I really wish I had left that behind. Like the very first time I extracted honey, I was so excited to have all this honey and it was really amazing. And my colony didn't have enough honey to make it through the dearth in the summer and they died in like September. I think it was August or September, they were done. Okay, next question. What is the real purpose of the divided double nuke? So I touched on this, you know, a bit earlier, I think it was, um, yeah. So I did touch on this briefly a bit earlier, but it's got some massive advantages. So one of the first simpler, more obvious ones is you can put two physical colonies in the footprint of one. So if you're in a neighborhood where people are like, you can only have one beehive, and they don't even know what the parts are, they don't know anything about them, but they're qualified to create rules, regulations, ordinances, or legislation around things. I know we don't have a problem with that anywhere in the country because we've got qualified people everywhere, but in the unlikely event that you had unqualified people providing this kind of guidance for you, this gives you the ability to have two colonies in a single colony's footprint. The next thing, though, is for overwintering, huge advantage for overwintering. That gives them the ability to form one big giant cluster. So normally when you look at a, let's say you're talking about a couple of deeps, there'll be a cluster that forms right in the middle of that deep, and that's where the bees are going to kind of reside as they move around. The cluster will kind of move around to access food and resources and things, but it's generally in the middle of the colony. When you use the divided deep, they will actually cluster on the inner wall where the two colonies come together on that inner shared wall. They will come together and form this one big giant cluster and share the warmth, you know, with, with each other. And it's a super, super cool, neat thing. I've seen like a, uh, like an infrared kind of, it almost looked like an x-ray, but it was like an infrared view of those colonies when they were doing that. And it's super, super neat. The third thing is the ability to have those same two colonies working collaboratively to store honey. So you can then go up, let's say you had that first deep that's divided, and then you stacked, you know, let's say two four-frame nukes on top of that. You got a queen excluder up there. Then on top of that, you put a medium honey super, and then another one, and then another one. They will collaboratively go up into that space, store honey, both colonies moving back and forth, the workers from both colonies just doing their things, working as a team. And then when they're done, they go back down into their own colony. So it allows two colonies to work as one giant colony. And it's really, really neat. The next part comes into inspections. And I mentioned this earlier, but being able to just tilt 
an entire four-frame nuke forward, look underneath, kind of do your inspection, set it back down. You don't have to pull every single frame. You just look up and see, okay, there's some brood, there's some worker, let's see some drone brood, no queen cells, honey, great, put it back down. Or, you know, it allows you to get a quick view, quick visibility into the entire colony, the population, their health, and it just, it's very, very efficient. So I hope that answered the question for whoever asked that, but if I didn't, just shoot me an email and we'll revisit that again. So the next question I have here, I added this actually fairly recently, to wrap or not to wrap your colonies for overwintering. So this is another area where I, I don't have some expertise or a lot of expertise because I don't wrap my colonies. Now, when we say wrap the colonies, what we mean is we're basically taking like a roofing paper, like the black roofing paper, and you physically wrap around the entire colony. You cut you know little holes wherever there's an entrance, so sometimes you just have a bottom entrance. A lot of places, if, particularly if there's a lot of snow, they'll have a bottom and a top entrance so that they still have a way to get out if the weather is nice. But the idea behind this is your, you know, any kind of cracks or holes are getting sealed up and, you know, the dark color of the roofing paper would hopefully absorb some heat and keep things a little bit warmer. It's a real popular thing I know in some of like the Midwest and the Northeast and, you know, places where it's really, really cold. I have never done it. I don't have any intentions of ever doing it. Even that year when my winter temps were down in the 20s, you know, I think I had five colonies, I think at the time, four of the five made it over winter, no problem. I don't remember why the fifth one didn't, but not having them wrapped or having them not wrapped did not seem to impact things at all. But I think that that may be very unique, you know, to my situation. I think if you are in these really, really cold climates that have brutal winters, it, it definitely makes sense. I really can't tell you. This is what's really unfortunate because a lot of people will email me and they'll say, hey, I live in you know Minnesota or I'm in Michigan or Montana, North Dakota, you know, wherever. How, you know, how many frames of honey do my bees need to make it through the winter? And it's, it's frustrating because I wish I had an answer. I wish I could say, oh, you're going to need you know, 17.5 frames of honey to make it through the winter. And the reality is that I have no idea People who are local, local bee club, local people on different bulletin boards or other, you know, Facebook groups or whatever, social media things that you like to engage in, they're going to have a better idea if they're local to you than, than I will. So I do apologize that I, that I don't have a lot of guidance on that one. But I think that it could be overkill depending on where you are. I have another question on here. About bee suits. So it's like, are the cheap ones okay? Or do you kind of get what you pay for? And uh, are there other areas within beekeeping and equipment where you can kind of go cheap, you know, save a few bucks by buying some of the cheaper stuff? What I would say is you are definitely going to get what you pay for. I have some of the really lightweight, cheap, you know, like $17, $18 pullover things from Amazon that's got a veil and a pullover and it's long sleeve. And for what I'm doing that's fine. I'm really just trying, I throw those on when I'm doing a quick inspection and want to take a look at something specific, or maybe I'm adding feed to a feeder. And I know that if I get into it with an angry colony, because I've, you know, really, really disrupted things, I know that that's not going to provide me with adequate protection, but they're like 18 bucks and I've got two or three of them and then they get funky and I throw them away and grab another one. It doesn't matter. If you are really, really concerned, like if, you, if you're if you allergic to bees, then spend like that 100, 120, 
you know, whatever dollars on a good quality jacket or spend a couple hundred bucks on the really big, thick, heavy stuff. There are a lot of people I know who are allergic to bees who keep bees and they just make sure that they're very, very well protected and make sure you have your EpiPen with you. But you definitely are going to get what you pay for. And I recommend if you get into this and you're really, really serious about it, like there are sometimes in different types of things where you can say, well, buy the really cheap stuff and see if you like it. And then if you like it, then commit to the more expensive. And I subscribe to that a lot of the time. This is one of those things where, particularly with children, if you have young children or young people who want to get into beekeeping, they get stung a couple times and it hurts like heck. And they they bail out, man. They're done. Like my middle daughter, I mean, she's you know, great girl, love her, but she wants nothing to do with beekeeping. Like she's been stung a couple times, out. She's done. So make that investment early on, you know, and um, particularly in the bee suits area, I would definitely recommend that so that you don't have people or even yourself become discouraged. Now, as far as other things being cheap, I have a really cheap smoker like the cheapest one that I can find and they kind of work. Okay. You know, it's, it's been okay for a while this year. I made an upgrade to the fancy high end, whatever, you know, gold plated or I don't know what it is. It's not really gold plated, but I spent like four times what I normally spend on. And what I like about it is it actually puts out more volume of air. So it disperses the smoke better. It keeps it's It's taller so I can put more material in it. Was it worth what I spent? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't, I'm a kind of a cheapskate, so I, I don't think it was worth it. But in hindsight, you know, if you're just doing one or two hives, maybe three hives, the cheap ones are pretty good. I think it's once you crack that eight or 10 number and you're, you know, your smoker's going out and you're like, geez, I got to go put more stuff in it. You know, like that's where it might make sense to make the investment. But in general, you can get hive tools on Amazon or eBay or whatever and they should cost you about 7 or $8 a piece. You can usually buy three or four at a time, and it's a lot cheaper. So where it might be 7 or $8 for one, you can get four of them for 15 or $16. I don't particularly like the ones with the little J-hook on them because I used one of those one time to pull a frame up, and the frame was heavily propolized. That top piece, it just literally like ripped it right out because it, every, the propolis had everything so stuck. And that was kind of my first time using one of those. So that's the only real reason. It's maybe not a good reason. But I get either the yellow or the red ones, whatever the cheapest ones are. The only thing I would caution you about with those, I've gotten some of them that are like knives, right? You, you just want something that's going to allow you to get in between the hive bodies and separate them. You want something that's going to be able to help you separate frames. You know, you don't need to like butcher a deer with them or something. But I've had some that come in that are really, really sharp. So... You may want to put them up against a grinder or a file or something just to dull them a little bit or just be aware that you can, you know, it can double as a pocket knife if you need it to, but really pay attention to that. Outside of that, I don't know what else you can really go cheap on. Like, I don't think I would be buying generic uh, Varroa treatment kind of stuff. I wouldn't be buying, you know, a lot of stuff that, that might be potentially counterfeited somewhere. Hopefully that's helpful. The last thing I've got on the list here is uh, we had a Facebook page. We weren't doing a whole lot with it, but it was there, and I was trying to get into it the other day to do some more work and, and try to upload some videos and you know put a little more content on there. And I was using the right password because I use a application that manages passwords so that I don't have to because I'm not smart enough to do so. 
And the message from Facebook popped up and it said, it looks like you're logging in from a different browser. Change your password. And I was like, okay. So I went into the password manager. I ran the thing, you know, generate new password, put it in there. And it was like, great. Now let's get you logged in. And it was normally I would expect to have maybe like some security questions, go to your authenticator app and get a new six digit code, or we're going to send you a text or we're going to do something. So they said, do you have access to your phone on record? I'm like, yep. They send me a thing, enter the six digit number. Good. Put my six digit number in. And then it says, click next to find out how to, you know, gain access to your account. I clicked next and it was like, ask your friends for help. And I'm like, I don't even know. So apparently they want to reach out to all of you and be like, hi, this guy who does a podcast and talks about bees sometimes, we need you to help him log in. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I went a couple of times and looked at that and I'm like, this is the absolute hands down most ridiculous security policy I've ever seen in information technology in my career. So I don't think I have a Facebook page anymore is really what I'm getting at. So if you send a message there, I'm probably not going to get it. Uh, so just hit me up, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com or uh, more on the bees at protonmail.com. Outside of that, folks, I'm going to wrap it up. We did three back-to-back Bee Buzz episodes here today, uh, seven, eight, and nine. And I'll get all these edited and uploaded. And I hope everyone has a great day, great week. Stay out of trouble. Don't do anything I would do. And be kind to one another. And we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.